there is, uh, and I still don't know who produced this movie, but there was a movie produced a little while ago called Up. And um, one of the words that many of you are familiar with if you've watched that movie is the word squirrel. And uh, squirrel is what distracted Doug and his friends, um, friend dogs, again and again and again. And they would be going around doing something and immediately and completely they would be distracted at the sight or the sound of a squirrel and they go, squirrel, squirrel. And uh, sometimes their distraction would be momentary. Other times their distraction would continue for some time and they would be off track for a while. I think in our faith, there are many squirrel moments. Sometimes those squirrel moments are short and temporary distractions. At other times, they can become such that they can lead us off a long path in a dangerous direction for some time. And so as we gather together, um, we call this Welcome Back Sunday. We've often used this Sunday just as a time to reorient ourselves, to refocus ourselves a little bit, to think about some of the big picture issues that um, are foundational to our faith. And uh, that's what I want to do this morning is just focus on three really foundational, um, sort of down to the footing level of our faith, uh, things that um, we can easily get distracted from. We can lose our orientation. We can lose our focus. And so we need to get back to them. One of our defining declarations here at PFBC, and I think you know it, God is real. That changes everything. It is so true. Um, you don't have to believe that for it to be true because it is true because whether you believe it or not, God is real. But it's a real help when you come to the conclusion in your own heart and mind as you look at the world around you, you believe the testimony of scripture, you are convinced of Jesus Christ that he was the son of God and you in your own heart can say, yeah, I believe God is real. The heavens declare his glory. I believe God is real, and then that changes everything. And so we want to look at uh, three ways in which that is true. The first is if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 31. And each of these sort of phrases, ideas that um, we're going to look at this morning are things that uh, continue to float in my mind and have for a number of years. They, they serve to reorient me, to recalibrate me, and to refocus me. And so I just want to share a little bit in your own, uh, for you, what goes on in my world sometimes. Psalm 31 is a, a psalm worth your spending some time in. We're only going to look at a few verses this morning, but if you haven't read the psalm or have never spent any time in it, I would encourage you this week, just make note of it and to spend some time um, floating and lingering over it. It's a helpful psalm to work through when life is tough or when the circumstances of your world are sort of shaken or turned upside down. David wrote the psalm, at least that's what the subheading says, and so it's helpful to identify with another one of God's followers and how they wrestled with these things, and we see David's declarations of faith. You can note them yourself when you read through it, and what did he say about God that sustained him and helped him as he went through those difficult times? We have his descriptions of the challenges that he faced at that particular time in his life and what he was going through. And then we have his exclamations of thanksgiving at the end when uh, David uh, speaks and gives testimony to what he has learned and what God has done. In a few words, when you read through the psalm, it is a declaration uh, that the Lord can be trusted to preserve his servants through many dangers, toils, and snares. 
and we might add disasters and troubles and fears and aggravations and assaults. It's like David says to us as we read it, no, no, look to God. Take refuge in him. It says, look at the troubles that I've been facing, exhaustion and isolation and intimidation. Look to God. Look to the resources that God has given to sustain me. Listen to the testimony that I give as I reflect on how God had sustained me. It's kind of one of those stop and get your bearings kind of psalms. And so I commend it to you as you go through it this week. As they say, sometimes in life, we need to stop and get our bearings. We have lost our orientation. I have found that a couple times out in the woods that I have all of a sudden realized that I don't have a clue where I am. And I need to stop and look at my phone. <laughs> Find Paul. <laughs> No, but I get my orientation. Uh, I need to get my bearings again. And so that is so true of life. And so David is in the midst of some very difficult circumstances, a difficult time in his life. And this psalm is a reorientating kind of psalm to him. At the very foundation of this, I'm going to read verses 14, 15, and 16. David says, you are my God. I will trust you. That's one of the greatest ways to reorientate yourself when your world has been turned upside down and you're troubled is just stop. Say to yourself, you are my God. I will trust you. Look at verse 14 and we'll read verses 14 to 16. But I trust you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Verse 14 begins with just such a helpful reminder of what we ought to say when life is difficult. But I trust in you, O Lord. When things around you are seeming to give way, when you don't know where to turn or to who or to what, when you know there are many options in which you can turn to, you can say, well, I'm going to go to my doctors or I'm going to go to my bank account or I'm going to go to my friend. None of those are in and of themselves bad places to turn, but ultimately you ought to say above and beyond all of those, but I trust you, oh God. And that's what David says. He, in another place, the psalmist says, I will raise my eyes to the heavens. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the maker of heaven and earth. And how is that trust expressed? Well, it's expressed in this declaration. And, and think this through with me just a little bit. He says, but I trust in you, O Lord. I will say, you are my God. Now that is more than simply saying, I will say you are my God. That is a response to something. That is his response to a covenant that God has entered into with his people. It's a response to a covenant relationship with a God, and I pray that goes back to Jacob, but it goes back further to the God of Abraham. When God made a promise to Abraham and God first approached Abraham, he declared to him, I will maintain my covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. And so we are in a long line of relationship with a God who is a covenant-keeping, covenant-making God. And he established that covenant back in Genesis chapter 17 when he first declared and uttered words to God. He says, I will be your God. What does that mean when God says to Abraham and he says to us, I will be your God? 
Well, a Scottish theologian, David Donald McLeod, I found him very helpful, and he's helpful here. He says, I will be your God. What does it mean when God says this to Abraham? Well, it means that God is saying to Abraham, I will be for you. I will exist for you. I will exercise my godness for you. I will be committed to you. Is there any way to improve that? Is there any way to say, well, I need more of God or that's not enough or God, you haven't gone far enough? There is no more glorious promise in all of the Bible, not in Romans, not in Hebrews, not in Revelation, not in the Gospel of John, not in the upper room. Nowhere in the Bible will you find a more glorious promise than this one that God makes to Abraham and to his seed, I will be your God. All of that is packed into this statement. My godness will be for you. I will exist for you. I am here to help you. And so David's response when he says, you are my God, is a response to God's declaration to him, I will be your God. You're, you're not just making a God up in your head. You're saying, the God of Abraham will be my God. The God of promise, the God of eternity, all of the God with all his resources that were behind Abraham will be my God. So these words when he says, I will say you are my God, it's a response to God first saying to him, I will be your God. I hope you can affirm or will affirm again this morning in response to God's declaration, I will be your God. Yes, you are my God. And then verse 15 is some of the words that, these are words that I think about often in my own life and I want them to drill down into your own heart. My times are in your hand. I don't think there's any more settling phrase, more peace-giving phrase, more stabilizing phrase than to say that and believe that this God that you have just declared to be your God, that your times are in his hand. That's an incredible understanding of God. It's an incredible expression of trust. Theologically speaking, we could say that it's an expression of confidence in God's providence. And God's providence is, is the, the way that he leads and guides and governs and sustains the world in every aspect of the world, down to its smallest, smallest component, to the farthest away galaxy that's billions of light years away. God guides and directs and sustains and governs all things. So there could be a theological expression and understanding behind that, but it's also a practical expression. It's, it's an acknowledgement, it's a confession of David that all the circumstances that exalt, that, that engulf his life are in God's hand. Do you believe that? Is that what you say when your world is turned upside down? Is that what you say when you're exhausted, when you feel isolated, when, when, you, when you feel persecuted, when your health is turned up, upside down? Do you say, but I will trust in you and I will say, you are my God and my times are in your hand. Everything that impacts him, everything that assaults him. And this is not just this particular time when David is writing this psalm, he uses the phrase, the, the word, the plural, times. All of my times, from the moment of my conception into eternity, 
My times are in your hand. John Calvin notes the plural times and says David uses it to mark the variety of causalities by which the life of a man is usually harassed. And the proof that the psalmist understands all things to be in God's hand, not as a simple resignation, but rather as a living hope, is that right after this declaration of trust, he plays, prays, rescue me. Do you understand what Calvin is saying there? He's saying it's not just a passive giving in and a resolution, oh yeah, God, my times are in your hand. It's not a statement of faith, or I mean of fate. It is a statement of confidence that because all of my times are in God's hand, I can pray, rescue me. Rescue me and take me in your arms. That's the song that I, I had to sing because it's been going in my head all week long. But that's what David says. Because he knows that his times are in the hands of a living God who is real, the God of Abraham, at the end of it, it's not just a statement of faith. It is a declaration of confidence that because his times are in God's hand, God can rescue him. He can deliver him. What an amazing confidence. And then in verse 16, he says, and make your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Do those words sound familiar to you? If you've been at PFBC long enough, you would have heard them dozens of times at the end of our service when we conclude with the ironic benediction in Numbers chapter six. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. David would have heard those words hundreds of times when he went to the temple. At the end of a worship service, at the end of a sacrifice, he would have heard those priestly words declared. But you see what that's saying? It's that David is taking those words of benediction out into his life. So it's not just words for Sunday that echo in the building and they're here when you leave. They're words to stake your life on when you go out on Wednesday morning and your world just gets turned upside down and you're, you're hassled at school or you're a job that you thought you would have you've lost or you're persecuted or sickness comes and you say, oh Lord, make your face to shine upon me and may your steadfast love protect me and guard me. In other words, the words of benediction that we speak at the end of the service are not just wonderful words for you to say, yeah, great, and then off you go. Remember them, take them with you, apply them in your world on Monday, Tuesday, Saturday of the coming week. Do you need to get your bearings this morning? Have your circumstances caused you to drift away from this notion, this confession that David has, this opportunity to reorientate our lives, to again declare, I trust in you, God. To say again to yourself and maybe to your spouse or your family, and I say, you are my God. You're not just the God of today, you are the God of Abraham. You are the God who promised to sustain and go with and guide and get Abraham to the promised land. You, O oh God, are my God. It's an expression of renewed confidence that my times are in God's hand. Therefore, God can act on my behalf. Secondly, recalibration. The first is reorientation. Sometimes we just need to get our bearings again and our bearings need to be that I can trust God he has my times in his hand. The second is a recalibration. You are my God, I will honor you. 
For this, we jump ahead to Daniel chapter 5, verse 23. I will only refer to the context of it. If you've grown up in church or you've been to Sunday school, there is a good chance that you have heard the story of Daniel chapter 5. It's the story of Belshazzar. And Belshazzar was the guy who saw the hand writing on the wall when he was having this big party. And so the context of um, this, this day in Belshazzar's life, and it actually turns out to be his last day, was that he thought it was time to throw a party. And so he had a thousand of his nobles brought together and the wine was flowing. And the, one of the opportunities that it gave Belshazzar was to show that he could drink every one of his nobles under the table. It was a drinking party. And so in the midst of all their drinking and their drunkenness, and it's no different than what happens today in many homes or in many pubs or in many places, but uh, here they, as they're drinking and um, doing all this, they, Belshazzar says, well, bring all the golden goblets and all the stuff that we took from the temple of Jerusalem. Let's drink out of those. And all of a sudden they started singing songs of praise and worship to the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood. They started making doxological statements. Oh, praise the God of gold and praise the God of silver. And oh, thank you, God of wood. And, and that's what happens when you drink sometimes. Particularly if you drink too much, your thinking becomes fuzzy. You make poor decisions. And it's no different here with Belshazzar. And all of a sudden, in the midst of their doxological praise to these fictitious gods, this hand appears on the wall and it starts writing. And Belshazzar is terrified. And if you've ever been drunk, you know sometimes that your feelings can be magnified. It says that his hips felt like they dislocated and his knees began to knock. And he became sober, I would say, in a hurry. Nobody knew what was going on. There was a commotion and all of a sudden the queen is called in and the queen comes in and says, what's the matter, Belshazzar? And he says, look, and... She says, uh, he says, none of my guys have a clue what it means. And he sa she says, I know a man. Daniel would have been about 80 years old at this time. Summon Daniel, he will give you the interpretation. And so Daniel comes in and it's fascinating where Daniel starts and this matters. Daniel starts with the king. He, he says, oh king, the most high God gave your father this kingdom. And then he recites the story about Nebuchadnezzar's experience of pride and, uh, and his time of seven seasons of acting like a wild animal. And he says, until he acknowledged that the Most High God is ruler over the kingdom of his men and sets it over anyone he wants it, he lived like an animal. He says, God has given Nebuchadnezzar his greatness, his glory, his majesty. All the earth feared him. He has power over life and death to do with as he pleased and as he will. But he was arrogant and proud, so the Lord took all of this away from him and gave him the mind of, the an, uh, of an animal. That's what Belshazzar knew. He knew the story of Nebuchadnezzar. 
He knew the, the, the history of Nebuchadnezzar. He understood what he did. He understood why he lived like an animal. He understood that God restored the kingdom back to Nebuchadnezzar. He knew what Nebuchadnezzar proclaimed after that is he sent an exclamation to all of his known kingdom at that time. This is God, serve him. And he says, until he acknowledged, in verse 32, until he acknowledged the most highest ruler of the kingdom of men and sets it over anyone. And then this is the knife into Belshazzar's gut. You knew all this. That's a terrifying phrase. Belshazzar, you knew all of this. It's a phrase that is pivotal in the recalibration of our lives. In verse 22, it says, you've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You've praised the gods of silver and gold, a bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you did not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. You knew all this, but you didn't give a rip. That is significant recalibration in our lives. He knew the ways of Nebuchadnezzar. He knew the story. He knew the discipline of God that was a result of his pride. Daniel doesn't mince words. He says, you have not humbled your heart. Even though you knew all this, you've exalted yourself instead against the Lord of heaven. You've drank from vessels, uh, from the vessels. You've praised the gods, made of, uh, the gods made of silver and stone. You have not glorified God. This is scary stuff that Daniel is saying to Belshazzar. He's addressing his defiance. He's addressing his rebellion. He's addressing his arrogance. He's addressing his hard-heartedness. He's addressing his attitude that says, who cares? These are the words, these are words spoken to one who doesn't care about God. I don't believe that. That's good for you, but it's not good for me. Ah, oh, God's not the same. It's a different God now. We're, we're 60, 70 years later. Do you know how easy it is can, to fall into this pattern of you knew all of this, but it doesn't affect our behavior. Think about marriage. When you were dating, what did you do in marriage? In the early years of marriage, how did you treat your spouse? How did you talk to your spouse? How did you deal with stuff? And then it comes 30 years later, 40 years later, and even though you knew all the stuff you're supposed to do, you knew that you're supposed to not go to bed angry. You know that you're supposed to speak kindly. You know that you're supposed to be tender-hearted. You know, and my wife and I were talking about this, and I did it once, and then I haven't done it for a while, is open her door for her. I used to do that a lot. But we know all of that stuff, and it doesn't give a rip anymore. And our marriages falter. What about in relationships? You're dating you know that God says you are not to have sexual relations until you're married. You know all of that, but you go ahead and do it anyhow. You knew all of that, but it doesn't affect your life. It doesn't affect your actions. Somehow you write it off. Sometimes you put it behind your back. Somehow you say, well, no, that's not the same God anymore. Times have changed. God's not the same way. Even though you knew all of this, it doesn't affect your present behavior. Maybe in our worship, we gather together on Sundays and We've gathered for months, for years. Maybe this is your first time. Maybe it's your 101st time. Our church attendance has been disrupted. Our fellowship has been disrupted. We are letting things go that maybe we would have never let go before. 
even though you knew all of this, you don't honor God anymore. What does it mean to honor God? Just, I think it means to give him our attention. I think it means to obey him. I think it means to think about him in our thoughts and our actions. I think it means to let what we know about him influence and direct the behavior today. Belshazzar, Belshazzar had been given an incredible opportunity to reevaluate his life, to recalibrate his life. He'd been going off path and he had this very clear, sure, certain understanding of God's way from, uh, with Nebuchadnezzar and he didn't heed it. Everyone here today has an incredible privilege even just being here today with this group of people singing these songs and fellowshipping with one another and having read the scriptures we read and even hearing the things that were being said now from the word of God, we have an incredible privilege. You know these things. Maybe you've grown up in the church. Maybe, maybe you've been part of a church since the day you were born and your parents have brought you here. You know all these things, but your life now has just gone so far off a different path. We are to honor God with what we know. We're to take these experiences, these things that God has privileged us to hear and to experience and to know, and we're to bring them into our lives and honor him and thank him for that information. So the question is simply, what have you done with the things that you know to be true about God? What are you doing today with the things that you know to be true about God? And this is the phrase that, just goes through my head. That, that stuff really matters, but it's, it's this. The God who holds in your hand, or in his hand, your life and all your ways. We're not dealing with a God of wood or stone or metal. We're dealing with a living God. Another translation says, the God who controls your life breath and every move you make. Now, I know some of you want to start singing every move you make. <laughs> These are the songs that go through my head when I'm preaching. But that's very true. God who controls your life breath and every move you make. The God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. These are different translations of that same Aramaic phrase. That is recalibrating material. To fix in your mind, okay, what do I do with a God who holds my breath in his hand and controls every move I make? The response of Daniel to Belshazzar was the interpretation, Mene, God has numbered your days of your kingdom and brought it to, the, brought it to an end. He controls your destiny, Belshazzar. He's numbered your days and it's done. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. You knew all this and you continue to praise the gods of gold and silver and wood. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And verse 30 says, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. He controls your breath. He holds your life in his hand. He gives you the breath of life. That's incredible power. Such is involvement in your life, loved ones. That is God's love for you. That is God's power in your life. That is God's wonder, his mercy, his grace. 
It's a warning from God to each of us. It's a recalibration help to each of us. It's a word about the orientation of our thinking and our living. So the first one is simply, you are my God, I will trust you. The second is, you are my God, I will honor you. And the third one is found in Acts chapter 17. It's also a sort of one of these centering passages for me or one of these big picture passages that, 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 that help me zoom out sometimes and think about the God who I believe is real. It's the third foundational truth. Paul has come to Athens and he has found a group of individuals who are philosophers and they talk about everything, but they're also spiritual and they have all their idols and they've got a unique idol which is not named. It's an idol to an unknown God. And so Paul wants to begin to talk to them about the God that they don't know and help them know who this God is. And so he begins by saying to them, these complete, utter strangers to the gospel, the God who made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined all the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Where would you start if, if you were talking to somebody who had never heard the gospel, where would you start? I think Francis Schaeffer was asked, if you had a certain period of time with somebody to share the gospel, how would you do it? And he said, he said I would spend 90% of my time starting in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. That's what Paul does here. The God who made heaven and earth from one man. We've not evolved. We've not come from multiple sources. We have come from Adam. And from Adam, every man and woman on the face of the earth can trace its industry back to him. And then ahead, he continues on and he says, this God is self-sufficient. He doesn't live in temples made by man. It's not like we need to feed him. We don't need to put bowls of goodies for God before we go to bed so that he doesn't go hungry. We don't need to build him a place that he can, he can sit in or hide in to protect him from the elements. He is beyond this universe. He is self-sufficient. He doesn't need our stuff. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need us in any way. He is completely self-sufficient. He's a God you can't control. He's a God you can't own. He's a God you can't coerce. He's a God you can't manipulate. He is self-sufficient. And then he goes on and he says, he gives to mankind life and breath and everything. Here's this phrase repeated again. He gives to man life, breath, and everything. Do, you understand, do we understand that? He is the source of our life. He is the source of our universe. He sustains it. He, he, he sustains us in our jobs. He sustains us in our health. He sustains us with the breath of life. And then listen to what he says next. And he made from one man, I think it starts at verse 24, and he, or verse, sorry, verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of his dwelling place. I think often of this, loved ones. You are not an accident. You are not the product of chance. You might not know your origins. You might not know your father and mother, but God knows everything about you. And God has determined when you will live. God has determined where you will live. God has given you meaning and purpose. He has given you life and breath. And so as the 
as, as Paul is writing here, he says, listen, don't think of your life as controlled by faith. Don't think of your life as an accident. Understand that God has determined the exact boundaries and the time and the places that you will live. God knows your ancestry. God knows your history. God knows how you got to Canada. God knows how you got to Vancouver Island. God knows how you got to Oceanside. He knows all of that. He's determined that in the, in the, in the, in the wonders of his wisdom and power and might. You are here at this time because God wants you here at this time. And why? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. That is, that is massive. Why are you here today? That you might seek God and find him. Why are you not living in, in Tokyo or living in Timbuktu or living on, in the South Pole? Because God wants you here so that you can seek him and find him. He has provided a context for you in which you can find answers to your life. You can find connection with the one who made you. You can enter into an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ. He's made you in his image. In him we live and move and have our being. We are his offspring. Let this sink in just a little bit. God has set you up where you are so that you might seek him and find him. He's not hiding. He's not playing hard to get. He's not, he's not making it difficult for anybody to find him. He has set you in the circumstances of your life such that you can find him. When you seek him, you will find him. It's a statement about reality, about our place in this world. It's a word about focus. Sometimes we lose this focus. My life has no purpose. My life has no meaning. I'm just here to die. I've worked hard all my life, and well, it's as good a place to die as any other place in the world. God has placed you here. So think this through with me just a little bit. Why have you landed in Oceanside? Now, you, you might give me all kinds of reasons, but let's go back to the primary cause. You are here because God wants you here. Maybe there's a neighbor that you are beside that needs to hear the gospel or needs to be loved. Maybe there's somebody in your grade nine class that is lonely or doesn't know anybody else, never else has heard the truth, who, who doesn't know what it is to have a friend. Maybe you're in that particular classroom at this particular time so you can love that person. Maybe the job that you have is a job that only you can fit in and there's people that need to see the love of Christ. Why are you in Oceanside? Why are you in PFBC? Why has God brought you here? Why are you thinking of making this your church home? Why have you made this your church home? It's again, not by accident. We are the body of Christ. We need you and you need us. The eye can't say to the ear, I don't need you. Where would the sense of hearing be if we were only an eye? There's an interconnection, a unity that comes from being the body of Christ. If God has brought you here, it's because he needs you here and because we need you here. 
Ask yourself that question. Ask yourself, God, why have I landed in Oceanside? Why have I landed in Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church? So as we enter into this week, think about maybe this, the squirrels that you've been chasing. Squirrel, squirrel, squirrel. Maybe there's all these distractions and you just need to come back in the midst of your circumstances, your trials, your difficulties, your joys and say, I will trust you, God. You are my God. My times are in your hand. Maybe it's time to recalibrate. Maybe, maybe all the things that you knew about God, you've just kind of forgotten. They're not affecting your life anymore. You're not really honoring God. You're living for yourself. And maybe you need to hear and be reminded of again that the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who determines the very course of your life is to be honored by you. And maybe it's because we need to refocus. We need to think about why we're here, not throw our hands in the air and say, well, it's as good a place as any. No, no, no. Remind yourself that God has you here primarily that you might seek him and find him but secondarily that you might serve him where he has made you to land. Father, thank you for your existence. I thank you that there is something and there is someone bigger than us, so much bigger than us. God of wonders, beyond all galaxies. You're beyond them because you made them. You put the stars into place. You have named them. And Father, our lives have meaning and purpose because you give them meaning and purpose. So as we reorient ourselves, as we gather together and we just enter into a new fall, it is a defining way. Gather us back in our thinking, in our confidence, in our trust. Turn our eyes towards you. Help us to honor you in all that we say and do. Thank you for the confidence that when we seek you, we will find you because you are not hiding. Oh, Father, help us trust you again, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.